Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome to episode two of our two-part series with Dr. Mitchell Selhorst covering rehabilitation for spondylolysis in youth athletes. If you didn't hear episode one, we highly recommend you go back and check it out. Dr. Selhorst brings a wealth of information to the table that puts this episode into context. We're covering the three-part clinical rehabilitation framework considerations for spondylolysis in the youth athlete. Mitch, can you start us off with that, that first phase? And the treatment is specifically talking about our active spondies. In all honesty, if you uh, have a method of treating low back pain that you are great at and it works for you, if you have a chronic spondy, go do that. If that's if that otherwise works for you, we don't need to be worried about that bone and make that person strong, get them back to the sport, get them back to doing everything. Uh, I've got nothing to guide you. Really, we... We see great results with these patients because that injury is done. But with our active healing process, we're trying to let that bone stress reaction heal. And a little backstory behind this of the phases, we have phase one, two, and three. It's pretty simple. But if we go back a few years, they were recommending no physical therapy and no activity for Three months. And that's not even too long ago. If we're looking at clinical commentaries from 2002 and 2007, they're recommending just complete shutdown of that athlete for three months before we're moving on. I mean, we treated our physicians treated that way for a long time. And uh, one of our first studies was going back through of our thousand patients we went through, we had 300 who were spondies. We called every single one of those, followed up with them. It was ended up being one to five years later. And seeing how their back was doing. Be honest, it's not great. Almost 50% of them had a repeat incidence of low back pain, not necessarily a spondy. And then 40% had to decrease or stop their sport altogether, specifically due to back pain. So going back to sport, it's a high rate of success, 98% going back to sport. But with that three months off, there's a high rate of something else happening. And our thought process is atrophy. You're out of sport. You're getting sanitary. You have all other sorts of things. Maybe you can't keep up with your team anymore. But that's a long time for a 13-year-old, 14-year-old to be out of a sport because it's three months off. And then you're looking at close to six months to get back. So things have shifted over the years to much sooner. PRISM, that would be Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine, just came out with a lovely paper where they just sampled all the physicians on how they treat. And about half would send patients immediately to physical therapy. And the other half are waiting until they're pain-free or waiting up to that three-month mark and resting. Mm. So there's still a wide variety in treatments depending on who's your physician, where you're treating at. You may see people are coming immediately into therapy and the next location over, you might be waiting two to three months before they come into therapy. And you just got to deal with those differently. Our group, we're actually doing a study right now to try to find out what's the best way. So we are randomizing our patients into immediate physical therapy starting in under seven days, or we're waiting until they're completely pain-free. And that's closer to four to six weeks out and seeing what our differences we're looking at. 
atrophy in the spine. We're looking at return to sport times. We're looking at pain, quality of life, and over a year out. I can't tell you the best way, but as a physical therapist, I like to see us working with that patient right off the start because I think we can work with that back safely right from the beginning without aggravating that stress reaction. And that's our phase one. That's the long roundabout um, roundabout way to your question. But our phase one is kind of that protected phase. We're exercising in the neutral spine, but these are kind of our dead bugs, our TA activations, multifidus holds. You know, some people may have trouble activating their multifidus and they're working on that. I personally, I don't focus so much on the multifidus or TA. I'm more of a general person. But, you know, whatever makes you happy on how you treat in this phase, we're trying to keep them strong through their core without really moving their spine while it's calming down. But the other key thing here is the athlete has to move throughout their entire range. So if we go back to our baseball pitcher, we have our low back, but we also have our thoracic spine. We have our hip. We have our rotation. We have our external rotation in our shoulder all of that plays a role in our pitching motion. So if we're lacking thoracic rotation, if we're lacking maybe some push off with our hip or we're lacking external rotation in our throwing arm, that athlete's going to compensate in their low back to go for a successful hard pitch. And we're going to see excessive stresses in those low backs. So this is the time to work on that regional interdependence and make sure we have that total arc of motion for our throwing athlete. Make sure our scat stabilizers are nice and strong. Make sure our rotation's where it's at. Stable in the lumbar spine, keeping that strong, but working the hips, working the strength and the legs. This is where we're really finding out maybe what could have played a role in the development of this spondylolysis. So what tells you you're ready to move on to phase two? It's really when they're starting to feel better. We have a set of criteria. We work, our group at Nationwide Children's Hospital worked with our compatriots at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And we see a lot of spawnies and we kind of came up with, hey, this is this is what we think might be a good idea to move on. And at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, they love some of the objective testing. So they have the TA hold. And then we're looking for a successful multifidus contraction while lifting the arm, making sure your TA and multifidus are contracting appropriately. And then from my end, I love to see that the patient is now able to successfully repetitively forward bend and backward bend in a motion necessary for ADLs. So what I would think is within normal limits with our athletes, I like to think of our within normal limits and our within functional limits backwards. Within functional limits for an athlete is almost twice as much because that's what they need. So I am thinking when I within normal limits, you know, they can bend backwards, they can bend forwards, they can go to school, they can go up and down. They can pick up their backpack. This is what they need for their ADLs. But their functional limits, what they need for sport, that may come in phase two. So we may not have full, full range of motion for them, but it's enough for their daily life, not for their sport life. So mm-hmm. that's what I personally like to see before we move on to phase two. Anybody you want to talk to, you can get in a fun debate of how accurate those core stabilization testing are. So... In this, we gave objective criteria. So if, you, if you're not sure, this is what you can do. You can look at this objective criteria and check those boxes. Uh, in our research study that we're doing, I will be honest, it says good, good core strength as judged by PT. I love that. I'll be, 
I'll be honest, like I've got no great special tests. I've got no great functional tests that guides me. So what you use in your practice, what you use in your daily life or what you use with your patients, use it. If you're thinking this person's falling all over the place, they do not have good abdominal control. They do not have good lumbar. We got to stay in phase one. But what, you know, you Chelsea might think versus what you Dan might think. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you based on the research who's better and who's right. So right now for our research studies, we're kind of leaving it a little bit vague. It's a pragmatic study. We're leaving it up to the clinician to make that choice of when to move on. Mitch approves that it's okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> Mitch approved. I like that. <laughs> I like that. That like, you know, you have some, you know, some guidance as far as like, you know, within, you know, a pretty decent range of motion. It sounds like, you know, their pain levels have been consistently kind of calming down. Their strength and coordination is improving. And then like once you're kind of hitting those wickets, there's some wiggle room for your clinical decision making to go to town. You know, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. So what so what is in phase two? Phase two, if we're looking at phase one kind of being our local stabilizers or our tiny muscles to keep that back strong and we didn't move anything. Phase two is working into our global movements. So we are starting to going to use those lumbar extensors. We're going to use the core muscles. We are going to work into flexion. We're going to work into rotation. And this is actually, a lot of people are scared of this. I don't know why, but they try to avoid extension with spondies. Don't do that. It is a very necessary act for sport. So we can't avoid lumbar extension through treatment and then get them back to sport where they're going to do it. So we have to start doing it. And this is kind of our phase to start working that lumbar extension. So it's in that pain-free range of motion. We're going to work lumbar extension and then we're going to start combining the motions and we're going to start adding weight to it. This is still, you know, your, your everyday exercises. We might start doing some crunches, some inchworms, some Roman chair extensions extension with rotation and then start adding adding weight but we're also still working on the legs we're still working on the thoracic and the, the scapular spine but really what we're doing is we're working through that full functional range of motion and starting to start to test it and start to add some weight and some Those speed are examples. motions i'm gonna guess you have really really solid criteria to move on to uh phase three very exact. So <laughs> this one, uh, what we're doing here is based on your patient's symptoms. And primarily, we use the McKaylee functional scale. We use our outcome measures with all of our patients to try to track much, you know, as we see adult patients, you might do that as well. But with low back pain, you have the Oswestry traditionally. And every single one of these athletes will score nearly perfectly on the Oswestry on day one. So it doesn't really help us. We might have the Roland Morris, but again, it kind of has a ceiling or floor effect, depending on which way I want to think about it. But our athletes top out quite quickly. So Boston Children's came up with the McKaylee Functional Scale, which is specifically designed for adolescent athletes with low back pain. And it's asking them about their sport ability. It's asking them about sitting in class and bending forward, running and jumping and bending backwards in their pain levels. I'll say it's the best thing we've got. It still needs some psychometric work. But moving on past phase two, we're looking at the patients. If you look at the questions on the McKaylee, other than them being able to play sport, they're scoring perfectly on it. So they can run without pain. 
They can jump without pain. They can bend forward without pain. They can sit through class without pain. And throughout the day, they no longer have pain. And that's kind of signifying to us that they're ready to move on to phase three. We have some more objective clinical measures. Again, take them or leave them. Because if you read the research, there's varying opinions back and forth on is this a valid test or is this not a valid test? But particularly for a newer clinician, those are great tests to find that out. But if you're an experienced clinician, you do you. So work on that. But really what we want to see is at this point in time, that athlete is pain-free. They can do their functional work of running, jumping, and sitting throughout class without any pain anymore. And that's when we're time. That's when we're ready to move on to our phase three. Mitch, don't tease us like that. What's phase three? Come on. All right. So phase three <laughs> is our return to sports phase. And really what we're doing is a graded progression back to sport. And it's, again, nothing special and extremely complex. So there are still sports that I have no idea what's involved. I have been working with our young athletes for 15 years, and I don't think you can know every single sport that's going to come into your clinic. So it gets a little bit crazy, but really the key here is thinking about what's necessary for that athlete, working those motions in the clinic, reinforcing those motions, maybe maybe fine-tuning some of the motions that you can. So if you have a baseball pitcher, you might do a throwing analysis. If you have a runner, you might have to do a right analysis and see where we can maybe fine tune some of these points. But really, we want to see a graded return to sport. So I'm going to start get them back into practice, but they might only be able to do non-contact drills. We do a couple of days of that. We're working our way back. This is where it also is a gray area. So if I've got a young athlete, let's say they play soccer and it's recreational. They play one time a week, two times a week, and it's for fun. It might take us two weeks to get fully back into sport. If I've got a, not me, um, my wife is an amazing um, gymnastics physical therapist who works with the high-level gymnasts. I stop at level four or five. Um, she works with the elite levels. They take a lot longer. They've got a lot more skills that they need to work and they're slowly working their way back in. So depending on your athlete, depending on their skill level, depending on the demands of their sport, we're making that grade and slowly getting them back in to every aspect they need. And as the physical therapist, we're working with the athletic trainer, we're working with their coaches, we're working with their parents to get them all the way back into sport and just slowly progressing them along the way. So it's a successful reintegration back into sport. Don't get discouraged if you're patient comes back with a little bit of pain. Don't freak out. Don't think, oh, I've broken them. Just, you know, work through that pain. As you're getting back to sport, there's going to be hiccups along the way. It's not going to always be a perfect return to sport. And they may have a little bit of a setback. Work through that, problem solve with them, and don't get discouraged. And don't let your patient get discouraged. That would be the, the biggest thing that I'd say it helps a lot of our clinicians is not to get freaked out when their patient comes back and I've got, oh, I've got two out of 10 pain after my last dance. Is there anything else that you're very excited about in your passion for respondees and adolescents that you want to make sure that gets across in this podcast? The psychological aspect. Wonderful. I think just because there is a, 
a lesion on imaging that we can see. We see this as a biomechanical injury, and we don't need to think about the athlete's psychology or what's going on. One of the key pieces that I think about when I'm getting my athlete after they're diagnosed is what's the message that's been told to them? Because a lot of times they're told that their back is broken. And that that creates a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. They start to avoid things. They're an athlete. That's their identity. And now they have a broken back. So if you are, you know, a physician telling your patients that they have a spondy, let them know that they have a stress reaction or a stress fracture, but their back is still nice and strong and they'll go back to sport. But if you're a therapist and you're working and you your athlete has that message, what I like to do is spend that first session or two or three of trying to undo that broken back message of your back is nice and strong. It will get back to doing everything you want it to do. And we will be back to playing sport. And it is a small stress reaction or it may be a small stress fracture, but your back is not broken. So really putting it in context to see it more in a positive light than a negative light. And then there's just so many fun aspects psychologically is a lot of these young athletes, their identity is they're the athlete. And they're just told from their physical therapist or they're told from their physician, they they probably won't be able to participate in sports for the next anywhere from two and a half to five months. All right. You know, from my point of view, unless you're having an ACL or an MPFL reconstruction, this is your, you know, number two on how long you're going to be out of your sport when you're uh, working with our athletes. And this really hits them hard. So we see depression. Actually, in our study, we had to go through and we have a whole depression monitoring where if somebody scores so high, we have a whole team in place to contact the patient because it's so prevalent that these kids just get down on themselves. It may not be in the severe depression ranges, but they definitely hit a self-identity. They get social isolation because that's where their friends are. That's their yeah. identity. That's where they get their joy. And we just took all of that away from them. So as a clinician, don't forget that. There's that whole aspect that you need to work with your patient on while you're working with them in phase one, while you're working in phase two. So encourage them to still go to practice, even though they may not be able to be a part of it. Get them into working out in the clinic, even though it's maybe not the most exciting exercises in the world, but they still can keep on a little bit of that identity. They can still have that social aspect. They can still work out. And it's maybe a little bit less rough than you have a broken back and you can't do anything for the next several months. And we're just going to leave it there. Yeah, that is important as uh, just anecdotally, as I only work with collegiate athletes and the ones who have maybe received some messaging that's similar to that, it like really does affect how they function later on and the beliefs they have about their body later on. So yeah. addressing that in the beginning is crucial. Mitch, thank you so much for sharing everything there is to know about Spotties and Adolescents. And we really appreciate you sharing your time and talking about us with us on the on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I loved being here. Thanks to Michael Allen, Rob McHugh, and James McDonald really helped put all that together. Not just me. We worked as a team. We want to thank Dr. Selhorst one more time for coming on the show and sharing his time and his experience and his research with all of our listeners. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. 
for more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Bye.